Well, good morning. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. And I am here to tell you that Jesus Christ is risen, and He is risen indeed. And this morning, we're going to start a discussion about the resurrection. And over the next couple of weeks, the implication of the resurrection. We're not going to wait till Easter uh, to begin this important discussion. So if you have your Bibles, would you find Luke chapter 24? Uh, there should be a Bible around you. You can open up your device if you don't have one. But Luke chapter 24, in just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 1. In the mid-20th century, a doctor by the name of Dr. Kohler decided he would embark on an interesting experiment. He thought that if you inverted people's vision so they saw everything in the world as upside down, that eventually they would be able to adjust to that new sight and then live a normal life. So what he did is he devised this, this, this instrument, it looked like binoculars, and he put it on some of the people that he wanted to experiment on that turned everything upside down. And at first, people ran around like chickens with their heads cut off. That's a real thing. Did you know that? There was a chicken that actually lived 18 months with his head cut off. That's crazy. Doesn't seem right, does it? But there's sometimes things don't seem right when they actually are, and some things seem wrong when they're actually right. And so the people kind of got used to this. At first, it was pretty crazy. He said this, people would stumble around, they would grab a cup, smash. If they tried to fill it up, splash. If he tried walking downstairs, crash. You get the idea. But over the next week, however, people began to adjust to a world that was upside down. Even one guy could ride a motorcycle through traffic without crashing. It's interesting how that we can adjust to what's wrong sometimes and think that it's right. Or the counter to that, to adjust to what is right and think that it's wrong. In just a moment, I want to talk about some ladies that were in the wrong place looking for the right person, the right thing, but then that, a message came to them in that wrong place. We're going to go there in Luke chapter 24, and it really is kind of what we've talked about all weekend long. We've been in this weekend called Thrive. Thrive's a great word for what we've done this weekend. We've invited teenagers into our church and into our homes, and we've shared with them this incredible message of the gospel that would help them to see what is right, help me out, and what is wrong. Do we need help with that today, y'all? Does the world need help with that? And do I need help with that? Yes, and, and we need because in our world, it just seems like that there are those who are calling right wrong and wrong right. And the Bible told us that's the way it would be in the end. In First Thessalonians, the Scriptures tell us that the Thessalonians who were seeing things wrongly, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's been our prayer all weekend for students. And by God's grace, we've seen students come to faith in Jesus Christ this weekend. So I want to say thank you to all of our leaders and especially those of you who've opened up your homes to allow teenagers to come into your home and stay all weekend in order that they might hear the gospel, in order that things that are wrong might be made right. We're doing this as a church in our community by helping people, hopefully, to see what actually is right by looking at Jesus Christ, who is the one who did defeat death and rise from the dead. And we're inviting people to be with us this month. And be a part of our Easter services. I would encourage you, because the tomb is empty, don't let your car seat next to you be. Bring somebody with you so they can hear the message of the gospel. Luke chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, verse 1, if you don't mind, stand one more time. We're going to read this passage down through verse 8. 
But on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Notice, they found the stone rolled away, but they did not find Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I want to look at this passage and I want you to see several, several important truths here that are right, though they might have seemed wrong at the time. One, Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. Just as he said would be second. He was raised, secondly, just as he said, and thirdly, to transform our earthly life into eternal life, to transform our dead existence into a living one so that we have eternal life. That's what we're going to look at. Seem, things just seem to be wrong for the women. Everything seemed to be wrong. Jesus, who had been their hope, Jesus, who had been with them and they had been with him, ministering together for so long, is now gone. They're separated from him. And things just seemed wrong. And that leads to this first point. The grave was actually the wrong place for the women to look for Jesus. The grave was the wrong place for the people who were following Jesus to look for him. But in verse 1, we read, it was on the first day of the week at early dawn that these obedient women went to the grave. Why do I say obedient? Well, because they had to wait until Sunday to go to the grave because of their commitment to their God. If you have your Bibles in Luke chapter 24, it's an easy jump to chapter 23. Look in verse 56 where Luke explains that these women who wanted to honor the Lord's body went to prepare spices and ointments, but they had to rest on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, because that was according to the commandment. These women were obedient to the Father because they did not want to disobey the commandment to honor the Sabbath. Therefore, they could not visit the tomb of Jesus until that Sunday. And they came in at early dawn. And it seems to me that they had stayed up all night long preparing spices. They couldn't have done that on Saturday. They had to go back to their homes on Friday after the death of Jesus. They had to celebrate to the best of their ability the Sabbath with great sorrow. Did they make it through that celebration? And as soon as the sun went down on Saturday, they began to prepare spices and ointment for the body of Jesus. And as soon as they could, they went to the tomb. They were sleepless probably because of their sorrow. Death had come on them suddenly. This had happened so quickly, even though Jesus warned them. That's the way death is, isn't it? I think all of us have understood that no matter when someone we love dies, it's just always too soon. Doesn't matter if it's a child, 
or if it's a grandparent or a great-grandparent who dies in their 90s, we're just not ready for it. And I've had many people tell me, I'm ready, we're ready, we're prepared, they're prepared, but then when death comes, the answer back, I thought I was prepared. So you get where these women were. All night long, suffering in their sorrow because of the suddenness of the death of Jesus. Someone said, sorrow and love are light sleepers. They get up, they get up early. They're ones like the disciples in verse 21 of Luke 24 that are down and cast in their spirit because they hoped in Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. Well, they love Jesus, these women. Now, I want you to see something about these women. They're obedient to the Father, but they're such an example for us today. Because of their life, we have an example. Um, I, I was reading some different articles about the Bible, and I actually saw some headlines that asked the question, is the Bible sexist? To which some of the authors pointed out that they thought that the Bible was but a, an honest reading of the New Testament, especially the gospel accounts, will determine that no, the Bible is not at all sexist, but puts sexes in their right roles and honors them. Women are honored in the book of Luke. They are elevated and they are shown to have loved the Lord Jesus with a tremendous affection. For instance, we read about these women who were there at the garden tomb. There were no men there. We read how that one of them was one in John 12 that actually came to Jesus with a very costly perfume, anointed the feet of Jesus and washed his feet with her hair. And when the other disciples complained, Jesus said this, she does this, she does this for my burial. He actually says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a similar story about another woman, a different woman, who actually came into Simon's house and because of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ, got on her knees and began to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. That's an image. You remember the Pharisees were there and they were complaining if he knew what type of woman this was touching him. Jesus turned to Simon and said, do you see this woman? Simon, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she was, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not only anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And the woman, to the woman, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. These women loved Jesus. They were affectionate. They had a deep abiding adoration. It's because of this that their fear was put down. They were courageous, not only committed. Look at this. They come to the garden tomb. 
They know that Jesus has been killed at the hands of the Romans and that everyone who was a follower of Jesus Christ had their life at stake, were at risk of losing their own lives in the same way Jesus had died. Yet, that didn't move them. They were going to the tomb. They didn't care that Roman soldiers would be there guarding the tomb or that it might be reported back to the temple guard that these women were followers of Jesus and were honoring him. They went with great courage. Why? They love Jesus. There's a greater motivation in life than love. That's the greatest motivation ever. Remember the story of a young wrestler who was on a team that was really uh, at at the brink of winning a championship. And he was the last wrestler, but he was going to wrestle one of the best wrestlers in the state. So the coach said, whatever you do, just do your best. If you can win this match somehow, if you can find it within yourself to win this match, we win. The man looked across the, the mat. He saw that championship wrestler and he was full of fear. They got to wrestling. And the championship wrestler balled that little boy up, that high school boy up into a ball, into a knot, into a pretzel. And there he was, pinned to the ground. He said, man, what do I do? But somehow he mustered the strength to overcome the pin and then put down his championship opponent. The coach afterwards said, son, how did you do it? I didn't think you were going to win. When all that stuff I told you about winning and mustering up strength, I was just talking. I didn't think you had a chance, but you won and we are now champions. How did it happen? He said, well, coach, you saw him. He balled me up like a pretzel. I was all tied up like I've never been tied up before. I was hurting like I've never hurt before, but I looked down and I saw his shoe had come off. And his big toe was staring me right in my eye. And so I just chomped down on his big toe as hard as I could. Only to discover it wasn't his toe, it was mine. (laughs) Coach, when you bite your own toe, you'll be shocked at what you'll be motivated to do to get out from underneath that pain. There is no motivation though like love. 1 John chapter 4 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains, it hems me in, it controls me. It is a true sign that you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ if you have fallen in love with Jesus. I'll never forget hearing Paul Washer's testimony. Paul Washer, a pastor, a preacher, a missionary, said that he was far from God in college, but came underneath the conviction of of the Lord Jesus Christ, went back to his dorm room where young guys had been sharing with him Christ and he began to weep and he said, all I could tell you is I didn't love Jesus and now I love Jesus. That was a testimony of someone I heard in our church just two weeks ago who just recently came to faith in Jesus Christ and they said, all I can tell you is now I love Jesus. A true sign that you were saved is that you love Jesus. Love is such a motivator. Paul says, I don't even regard men the way I used to regard men because the love of Christ causes me to love men now. Changes us. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in a false religion. If he heard me say that, he would know that I think that. I don't mean that condescending. But he and I right now are doing something similar. We're fasting. Some of you are doing that as well. 
I was talking to him about it, and he said, yeah, I'm fasting. And I said, you know what? It's going to be good. When I get to heaven, I won't have to fast. Feasting in heaven. Y'all thought about that? No calories. Well, I have to count calories. Rejoicing. Fasting gone. He said back to me, laughing, yes. He said, but aren't, isn't, let me get this right, isn't that the reason we're fasting now so that we can get there? I understand from his point of view, from his religious teaching that that's part of the way to get there. It's not why we do what we do as Christians. We do what we do out of love for Jesus, love for Christ, because he has first loved us, now we love him. And that love constrains us, it controls us, it actually hems us in that we want to do what it is that is glorifying him. We are motivated by that love. And it only, not only motivates us to love him, it motivates us to love people. People that we one time didn't love or might not have ever come to love. But there's a love in our heart for Jesus that moves us to love our neighbor as ourselves, And we can't explain it apart from Christ. These women came to the tomb because they loved Jesus. They were courageous, but they were confused. They were confused. They weren't confused at where they were, but at what had happened. They came to the right tomb. In fact, in chapter 23, verse 50, the Bible tells us that there's some other courageous disciples, Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish-born man who was of the council and a good and righteous man. Verse 51 said he had not consented to the action of the people, but instead was looking for the kingdom of God. This man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Think about that. He takes Jesus down, wraps him in a shroud, lays him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. This is Joseph's tomb. This is Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who hates the body of Jesus, cares for the body of Jesus, places it in a tomb. Luke is a medical doctor who is giving us an orderly account. He said to Theophilus, who he wrote this letter to, probably a Roman um, politician. I want to make sure you understand clearly the life of Jesus. So I'm going to set out as a medical doctor to now become a historian so I can give you an orderly account of exactly what happened. Here's what happened. Joseph laid the body in the tomb, verse 55. Then the women who came down from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. It's not their first time to the tomb. They knew exactly where the tomb was. They weren't confused about where the body was. No, no, no doubt, Jesus had died. He'd been laid in a tomb. They had not mistaken the wrong tomb. Jesus had not swooned. He actually died and was placed in a tomb and then that tomb was sealed off with a rock and then was sealed off by the Romans and was airtight. What they were confused about is what happened. Luke says they found the stone rolled away, but they didn't find the body. Luke says in verse 4, they were perplexed by this, puzzled. Now, it's not that they didn't believe in a resurrection. Certainly they did. We hear Mary and Martha say to Jesus at the death of Lazarus, we know there's going to be a resurrection one day. They believed in a reunion. They didn't believe that they would never see Jesus again, that he was just gone. But they didn't understand redemption. They didn't understand what Jesus was up to. They were perplexed. And it was a genuine 
misunderstanding. Jesus was not here to live a good life, to set an example for people to follow in order to make this world a better place to go to hell from. But to redeem us from our sin and judgment. Jesus was not a good man who succumbed to his enemies as a martyr. The angels actually asked him, hey, have you forgotten? I don't know if this helps you at all, but I, I do need to be reminded a lot of Scripture. I need to be reminded a lot of a lot of things. Just before walking in the service, David Pappard said, Pastor, did you remember? And I was like, um, thanks for reminding me. They needed to remember what Jesus said. John chapter 10, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again. No one takes it from me. I'm not a martyr. I'm going to lay it down, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. I have charge received from my Father. You know when Jesus was on the earth, he was not quiet nor secretive about what his intentions were. His intentions were to come and to die and to raise again. Luke chapter 13, the very same hour. I love this passage. At this passage is so strong. At this very hour, some, some of the Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, you better get out of here for Herod wants to kill you. And I love what Jesus said. You go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons before cures today and tomorrow and the third day I will finish my course. Don't you just love that? You go tell that fox. I'm going to finish what the Father sent me to do. And he can't do anything about it. In Matthew chapter 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of sinful men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised the third day. They heard him, and they were greatly distressed. But death couldn't hold deity. Jesus had told them that. I'm not going to stay dead. You tear down this temple three days, I will rebuild it. Peter said this in Acts chapter 2, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I don't want us to have any misunderstanding here today. Jesus died, yes, but he certainly rose again and is alive. Why? Death can't hold Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Christ, Christ's death was powerful. It opened up other graves. If you read the New Testament, death was destroyed, Satan's power was crushed, and sin was defeated. Death entered into the world by sin, and its penalty is death, but Jesus Christ overcame the penalty of sin, overcame death. Therefore, Christ, who was sinless, enabled us to become free of our sin and free from the snare of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, the devil. Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. These women just didn't understand what was going on. And we can't be judgmental. We can't look at them and say, why didn't they understand? Because how many times have I heard the Scriptures 
and knew exactly what they said, but didn't take them to heart. We sing here the song, Glorious Day. It's a wonderful song around Easter, Glorious Day. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected, bearing our sins. My Redeemer is He. Hands that healed nations stretched out on a tree. He took the nails for me. Y'all know this song? Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day, He's coming. Oh, glorious day. Sometimes things seem wrong. It didn't seem right that Jesus had died to these women. They just didn't understand that he was working a work for their redemption. And he is for yours as well. I mean, here's the question. Wouldn't you want your sins carried far away? Wouldn't you want your sins carried so far away that no one could ever retrieve them? That they would be underneath the blood of Jesus and a great exchange like we sang about would take place and that you would receive righteousness and your sins would be carried away. Well, next I want you to see this grave was the wrong place for angels to have been sent. It's the wrong place for angels to have been sent. Look with me in this text, verse 4. While these women were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These two men were angels. Angels were messengers of God sent by God on Aaron. When I say that they were in the wrong place, I don't mean that they took directions the wrong way. They were at the right place at the right time. The women were the wrong place. And isn't it God's goodness that finds us in the wrong place in order to call us to the right how many of you would say, God called me out when I was in the wrong place? The message came to me in the wrong place. I have a friend that gave his life to Jesus Christ. He gave his life to Jesus Christ of all places at a heavy metal concert. The group that was playing was called White Zombie. They were not at all Christians. They're anti-Christians. And while he's standing there in that almost mosh pit of people, he said that that band was blaring and out from the gables came a cross. And on the cross was a clown. And they were mocking the death of Jesus. In the middle of a white zombie concert, the Spirit of God said, Are you going to join them? And in that moment, based on some of the upbringing that he had as a little kid going to church and remembering that Jesus died and the precious, preciousness of his death, he couldn't stomach the mocking of the cross and the clown on the cross. He repented of his sins in the middle of a white zombie concert. I just, maybe you weren't saved in a white zombie concert. <laughs> But wherever you were when you heard the message of God, you weren't in the right place, but the message came. That's the grace of God, isn't it? Here's the question. Why do you live for the living among the dead? I wonder how they asked that question. I wonder if they said, hey, hey ladies, uh, what, what, are y'all, what are y'all doing? Or do you think they said something along these lines? Why are you looking for the living 
among the dead. Then they made a statement. He is not here. He is risen. And then he said, don't you remember? Ladies, don't you remember? He told you that he would rise again. Look with me in verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The Son of Man, what a term, what a title. The Son of Man indicates that Jesus Christ is indeed the second Adam. You remember in a garden, in a garden, the first Adam caused all men to die. It will be in a garden. The second Adam, Jesus, will cause all men who are saved to live. In a garden, Adam secured our grave our death. In a garden, Jesus secures our resurrection, our life. Son of man means that He is man. He is humanity. He is in the flesh. He came as a man who suffered everything that humans could suffer and beyond. Here He is completely in the flesh. Therefore, you need to know this. He rose again in the flesh. He rose again bodily. The Son of Man is a term of humility. Not just humanity. He's the second person in the Trinity. Does not make him less than God, but shows us as a man how we are to submit ourselves to God. He came to do the will of the Father at the same time being equal with the Father. Son of Man is a title of deity. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man many times, but he is telling us that the Son of Man is a human, but also in the text here concerning Jesus tells us he is also the fullness of deity bodily, Colossians 2.9. John 1.14, we beheld the glory of God in flesh. This is the reason the Son of Man is able to forgive sins. He's both man and God. By being man, He was able to live for us as a substitute. Think about that for a moment. He chose never to sin. Anytime I say something along these lines, well, I'm only human, I need to remember Jesus was human. And as a man, chose not to sin, faced temptation, and then didn't sin. But as God, couldn't sin. What a mystery. What a truth. This Son of Man, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9, came to do what? Came to seek and to save that which is lost. And Mark says the Son of Man came to die and be raised again, and one day to execute judgment on all those who reject Him. And then Jesus told us this by standing in front of a court. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming in the clouds of heaven. This was the immediate statement at the trial that Jesus faced before he was condemned for blasphemy to death. The Son of Man is a fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel said in my vision at night, Daniel said way back, in the Old Testament, in my vision at night, I looked, and there was before me, like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. When the angel said to the women, the Son of Man, all of these reminders flooded them. He's the Son of Man. He's God come, it's come flesh. He is the second in the Trinity. He is deity. He is the one who's the Ancient of Days. How could the Ancient of Days still be dead? He's the Ancient of Days. They said, he must 
be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Jesus told him that in John 3. Remember in John 3 where Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and Jesus said, like the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness, so should the Son of Man be lifted up. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of Man. What did he come to do? To die? What did he do? He died and he rose again. How successful was he? On the third day, he rose. Hey, he's not here. He's risen just as he said. How successful is Jesus? He's alive. Securing the authority over all of the world and all the universe and everything that's created. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus announced he's coming again, but all authority has been given to him. In Romans 8, 34, earth and glory gives, is given to him as a reward. Do you not know, according to 2 Thessalonians, God has given all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember. Remember. I think it's good for us this morning to remember. Who do you trust in this morning? What do you trust in this morning? Never be afraid. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Corey Tim Boom said that. These women came to the grave. They didn't know what tomorrow would bring. They had no idea what was going to happen next. They had no idea what God was working. They were confused. And the message came. God's in control. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. Jesus is risen, just as he said he would. Corey Tim Boom and her sister, Betsy, were incarcerated in a German concentration camp. Someone had betrayed them for hiding Jewish people. Their lives were certainly in jeopardy. Betsy was very, very distraught. And that's when Corey Tim Boom said to her sister, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Some years ago, some tornadoes hit the prairies of Minnesota, killing and injuring hundreds of thousands of people, actually demolishing the entire town of Rochester. An elderly doctor and his two sons worked for days to aid the stricken, bandaging wounds. Their work did not go unnoticed. Some very wealthy philanthropist gave money to the doctor and his sons, and they began a hospital. And for years, they performed at least 15 to 30 surgeries a day. That clinic was known as then the Mayo Clinic. Some of you have been to the Mayo Clinic. Some of you owe your uh, presence here today to the ingenuity of doctors in the Mayo Clinic. That, that clinic came out of tragedy. We uh, may look at tragedy around us and we may wonder, what is God you're doing? What are you up to? The women, when they came to the garden tomb, they did not know what it was that God was up to. They should have known, but they didn't. They should have known God is trustworthy and God is good and God was working a plan and God would be faithful to fulfill that plan. And I want you to know that today that's the case for us. We may not always be able to trace God's hand, but Spurgeon said we can always trust his heart. When they came to the tomb, the women couldn't find Jesus. He was missing. But was he missing? No, he wasn't. He was working. And today, you might feel at times that Jesus is missing, but he's not. He is constantly at work doing for us what glorifies God, working all things together 
for the glory of God. I wonder what Joseph may have thought in a jail cell when he was there all alone, having been forgotten by a baker and a butler. God was working. Elijah was in a cave thinking he was all alone, depressed, discouraged. And Jesus came to him in a still, small voice. John the Baptist sat in a prison cell facing death, wondering, is Jesus who he said he was? But he didn't know that Jesus was working the works for which the Father had sent him all the while. It's true today. No matter what you're going through, you may think and feel that Jesus is absent, but there's a message for you. Remember the words. There is power in the resurrection and power to continue to work. And he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Which leads me to the last point here. And that was the grave was the last place these women needed to stay. They were there. But then they needed to leave. In verses 8 and 9, they remembered his words. And when they remembered Jesus' words, what did they do? They returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and all the rest. I don't know what all the rest means, but I'm sure it's all the disciples. But I have a feeling they didn't stop there. I can't say this for sure, but I'm just guessing. They told everybody that they could see that Jesus Christ is alive. The women responded in faith. They remembered that what Jesus said. They began began to believe then, and when they believed, they told. They may have felt early on something was wrong. Now they know what actually is right. They didn't know what had happened to Jesus. Now they faced the facts. Jesus Christ did die, that he did get buried, but now that he has risen. But beyond faith, beyond, excuse me, facts and feeling, they believed in faith. They believe the truth. I wonder what maybe it is we're facing in our future. Uh, you know, we, we have an unsettled future. We're asking questions about what's going to happen with the economy. Anybody asking that question? What will happen in Europe with Russia? What about the great sort taking place in America? People are moving all over the nation based on their political persuasion. What's up with this new world order? Have you noticed that a lot of old stuff's new again? I can't help but notice when I go around, I see t-shirts for rock bands. I, I haven't seen a t-shirt for a new rock band. I just see all the old rock band t-shirts. I see these teenagers wearing ACDC, the Eagles, Boston. I'm like, do y'all even know who they are? <laughs> I think there's just constantly a gravitation back to the old in the day in which we have an uncertain future. We don't know what the future is going to hold. We look back at the old and we go, this got to be better than where we're going. Well, what is all that about? Because no matter what happens in this world, here's the reality. Just like these women would find out, there is a shape in our heart that is a shape of God. And as Pascal said, until that void is filled with God, we will never be satisfied. Christopher Hitchens wrote in his own memoirs, that atheist, it could be that all existence is a pointless joke, but it's not, in fact, possible to live one's life every day as if it were so. We can live as if there's no purpose for 
creation, the world. But it's really not possible to live that way, is it? Douglas Adams, the author of the Hitchhikers of the Galaxy book, was rather unhelpful in his conclusion that the answer to life is found in the number 42, to which someone says, are you serious? Now, the Westminster Catechism gets it right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Without, without God, life is meaningless. But there's an empty tomb that proves that God is able to work even in the most difficult of circumstances and bring to us peace from God and the peace of God. Life is perplexing. Life is puzzling. We don't have the answers to life. I'm pretty sure that you're aware that all it takes is one text, one phone call, one activity, one action, and life is changed. But in this mess, in the wrong, in this stuff that we never thought we would see, God's at work in resurrection power. Life is perplexing at times, but don't misunderstand what God has said. I will fulfill all that I have come to do. Are you at peace today? You can have peace that passes understanding because there is one who has come out of the grave. You say, what does that have to do with me? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you have peace with death? You can't look at death and possibly try to live as if there's no God, can you? I don't know about you guys. I'm driving down the road. I see those hearse coming. I've been a part of a lot of funerals. But if I'm not in that funeral, if I'm not leading that funeral, I see a hearse coming, I'll glance, but I'll glance away. You know why? I really don't want to think about it. And then as you get older, as you get older, when someone dies you don't know, the first, the first question, when you're younger, like, how did they die? When you get older, you're like, how old were they? You want to know if they're older or younger than you. And you hope that we're a lot older than you. Life is perplexing, and you can't find the answers to life in graveyards. And you can't find answers to death except in an empty tomb. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we were once dead in trespasses and in sin. We once walked according to the course of this world. We were under the power of the evil one among whom we all fulfilled the passions of our lust, carry out the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, we're wrathful children. But God has been rich in his mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sin, has made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We can have peace in life because we can even have peace at death. Because our Lord went to a grave to carry away our sin, rose again to offer us the forgiveness and freedom of sin. What does that mean for us today? It means we can know real love. 
Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, and that's what Jesus did for us. In fact, he, went, he laid down his life for us, and, and while we were yet sinners, we weren't even his friends. And he dealt with our greatest enemy, which is sin, that leads to death. He f- secured for us a future, and now we don't have fear. We don't have fear in life, we don't have fear in death. We don't want to... I mean, death is something that, that we never faced, but we have security, and we have purpose, we have purpose. We have purpose that these women had. Go tell others about me. Go tell others about the resurrection. Go tell others there's hope, that there's a future. It doesn't matter what some president does. It doesn't matter what some nation does. It doesn't matter if the economy tanks. It doesn't matter what bills pass or don't pass. It doesn't matter what some theme park says. It doesn't matter what happens in my body. It doesn't matter what happens in my, my bank account. It doesn't My God is powerful and has overcome sin and death, and my hope is in him. This is is the message we have, y'all. This is the message we have. What are you going to do with Jesus? Some of you have never trusted Jesus. He's come out of a grave in order to come into your life, to come into your heart, as we say, but that is really just to take over your life. Would you receive him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to begin thinking about the resurrection. Thank you that, God, you have given us this hope of life and hope for eternity. That is a confident hope, an assured hope because of the resurrection. Lord, help us today to be messengers, just like the angels, to go to people that see the world one way like we did but have it so upside down to turn the picture for them so they can see that hope truly is not found in the graveyards of life, but in the resurrection power of the life of Christ to tell them Jesus can save them. I pray for those in this room that aren't saved today, they would give their life to Jesus as well. In Jesus' name, amen.